Hello everybody, this is Dylan with the Scripture Chronicles. In today's episode, we're going to be covering Genesis chapter 6 through 11. If you'd like to be proactive, you can read through that text prior to the episode. Otherwise, go ahead and open there if you'd like to follow along. Also, if you guys enjoy the show, we would love it if you went on to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and left a review on there. It really helps out the show. Don't forget to tell your friends. If you would like to communicate with us, ask us questions, anything like that, you can email us at scripturechronicles at gmail.com. If you would like to check us out online, the website is www.thebibleisastory.com. Again, that's www.thebibleisastory.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. everybody. This is the Scripture Chronicles podcast dedicated to exploring the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan and joining me is the ever classy Corey Howitt. Corey, how's it going today? Doing great. Excited for our show today. All right. Awesome. So as is custom, we're going to go ahead and give our brief recap of things that we've gone over up until this point. But as per usual, if you guys have not followed with us up to this point, it is beneficial if you listen to the episodes preceding this one. That way you can get a good understanding of kind of where we're headed, where we're going, what we've covered, and then jumping into this one, you'll be up to speed. So last week, we took on a big chunk of scripture, our biggest yet. We started looking at the two sons of Eve and their two sacrifices. We saw that Cain's jealousy over God receiving Abel and his sacrifice well led him to anger and murder. And so he gets kicked out east of Eden. And so now we haven't just left the garden. He is now fully gone out of Eden itself. And we follow down through Cain's line, and we see that this same type of um, mark, or um, if you take revenge or you go and strike Cain, Cain's descendant, Lamech, goes and brags about how he killed someone and sings a song about it to his two wives. So we see that Cain's line just goes ever darker. We're going down to this deep fall. And just as we're, we're going down deeper and deeper, the author takes us off of that track and brings us back to the promised seed. And so super important throughout the story of all the scriptures, especially of Genesis, we're, we're trying to follow the line where the promised seed will come out of in the curses to the serpent and those who took the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. God promises that there will be a seed coming from the woman to defeat uh, Satan and sin and death. So we're waiting for that guy. And so it, it takes us back to Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. And we so we followed that line down. And last week we came to Noah. And once we kind of finished that genealogy, we saw that the earth had become so wicked. And we landed on Noah and something that Noah's father said about him is that his name means rest and that perhaps he will be the one to bring that desired rest that never came to all of creation. So today we're we're going to hit this section thinking, is Noah the seed? Is Noah the guy going to bring rest when it didn't come on the seventh day of creation? Is he going to be the one to turn around this sinking ship, is he going to reverse the curses? Yes, keep in mind as we go through this that we are looking at the scriptures from the perspective that the Bible is, in fact, a book. That is, the scriptures work together to build a cumulative narrative. And all these narratives, as we're going to see, are actually building on one another to put forth one continuous story. So keep that in the back of your mind. Also, don't forget the fact that we aren't really dealing with our world, nor are we doing dealing exclusively with the world of, of history, but instead we're allowing the narrative to create the world for us and then really paying attention to the narrative cues as they come up and paying attention to how that affects our understanding or our view 
of this narrative world that is being pulled over our eyes by the author. Also, one last thing from me in regards to eyes. Don't forget that as we've seen, Genesis chapter 3 really pointed out that the crux of the main issue is that humans have decided that they are wanting to choose their wisdom over and against God's wisdom. The decision to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad was, in essence, a decision that the humans made to be able to make decisions that are right in their own eyes, to have their own wisdom, instead of choosing to feast on the divine life and obey God and God's wisdom. So now we're going to see just like Corey described from from last week and moving on to this week, how that choice is working out for the humans. What does it now mean that the humans are making these judgment calls, doing what is right in their own eyes, as the scripture says? And that will lead us into today. So is Noah the guy? That's going to be the main question that we're going to be asking today. Uh, We're going to be paying attention to whether or not Noah is actually going to bring this proposed rest uh, that's put on him when he's first introduced. If you remember, God, he rested on the seventh day, but there was no evening. And then moreover, as soon as humans fell, God started working again. So we're waiting once again for this this rest. When when is this rest going to be brought back? And when is humanity going to be brought back to that ideal state that was showcased in Eden? So with that, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter six, and we're going to start out in verse nine. So we talked about verses one through eight last week, linking up to chapter five. So they're actually a epilogue to chapter five, a continuation and summation of chapter five, not necessarily a prologue or introduction to chapter six. So with that, we're going to be starting in verse nine of chapter six. Let's get going. Yes, and we have that phrase again, these are the generations, right? So um, we're going to see that phrase mentioned 11 times throughout the book, and we're going to see those as kind of um, dividing points, dividing chunks of the story. And so we have, these are the generations of Noah, and how does um, Scripture talk about this character Noah? It says, continuing verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So... Very crazy story we're getting into, right? So we have this guy, peace, or sorry, rest come into the story, and we have nothing even close to rest in this story. We have violence. Everyone else on the earth is promoting violence. And so then God says to this character, our main character, Noah, so I'm going to end all flesh on this good earth I've made because it has become corrupt because of the people that I've made. And so he gives him the duty of making an ark, right, with all its uh, lengths and cubits. He goes and has him make an ark because, God says down in verse 17, I will bring flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Wow, that's just crazy. That is a big statement. Everything on the earth shall die. So we have, as Corey has already pointed out, a bunch of stuff going on just in the introduction to this flood narrative. Noah, he finds favor in the Lord. That's the the ending of uh, the narrative of chapter 5 and then the beginning of chapter six, he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God sees and makes the judgment call that this person is going to do something good. So we should already be paying attention to the fact that this person is highlighted as someone who's going to do something good. Like Corey said, he has this idea of rest put on him that he's going to bring him uh, us rest, but there's anything but rest 
going on. We get the idea now that this is actually the beginning of God deconstructing the good earth that he created in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So when God created the earth, he created it in such a way that it was in the idyllic perfect state. But now things have gotten to such a bad place that God is actually opting to destroy and basically hit the rewind button on the earth that is created. And he, remember when we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, when God actually separates the land from the waters, because the waters represent the proverbial chaos, the land represents order and good things. And so God is actually now letting the land recede back into the proverbial waters, the chaos that's going to destroy this, this humanity that he's made. It is anything but restful. Really quick, just wanted to mention that God, um, we talked about God calls Noah to make an ark to save him through the waters. There's only one other place in scripture where ark is used, and it's for the same purpose of carrying our main character of the story through waters to safety. Um, and that's for Moses. Most translations translate it as basket that, you know, his mom, his sister put him into a basket, put tar or pitch on it and sent it down the river to which Pharaoh's daughter picked it up. But it's the same exact Hebrew word. So we have an ark saving Noah and his family, in which this line is going to be the saving line, which, you know, all all lines need to come out of this person, obviously. But uh, we're, we're saving this line for someone to truly redeem the earth without just God destroying it, right? And so in the same way, God saves Moses to be the one who saves Israel from the oppressor Egypt. And so that was a quick aside about the ark. And so we see God save Noah because he had favor and he was righteous, just like Dylan said. And then verse 18, still in chapter 6, um, we have the first mention of the word covenants. So God wants to establish his covenant with Noah, and he wants him to put him and his family on the ark, and he gives instructions about bringing animals onto the boat. It's going to be a lot more on um, covenant to come, which if you guys know uh, much about this word, it's, it's essentially just a promise. God's saying, I want to establish a, a promise with you, Noah. And so before I do that, I got to save you first and you you got to save yourself. You, you got to build the ark according to these specifications. Um, but then God has Noah and his family bring on two of each animals. But something really interesting, starting in chapter seven, this is verse two. It says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate. And then just a pair of animals that are not clean. So we already have these links to clean and unclean animals being made. And, you know, Dylan, what do we know about that so far? Yeah, so far, the idea of clean and unclean animals hasn't even come up. And this is something that you should stop and ponder and go, well, knowing the story, I know what clean animals means. But if you were reading this for the first time, you would have no idea what the idea of clean or unclean animals means until... You get to Exodus and Sinai and Leviticus, and you start really delving into Torah and understanding what God is actually trying to do with the idea of clean and unclean animals. And then in rereading, you would really get a better grasp of what exactly it's talking about when it's talking about clean. And so Corey and I were chatting about this idea and kind of trying to make sense of why we thought that the Bible operated in this way, why we thought that particularly in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are so many references to things that uh, happen later. So in Genesis, we have a lot of references to things that don't come up until Exodus, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy. And the answer to that that we came up with is the fact that ultimately the Bible is meant, particularly the Hebrew Bible, but the Bible as a whole, is meant to be read and reread and contemplated. It's meant to be meditated on. It's not meant to be read once and then done like your typical spy novel. Uh, instead, 
the idea of the text is that you are going to be growing from this, contemplating on it, meditating on it, and as such, growing in wisdom. If you remember from our discussion on Genesis chapter 3, we proposed that the ultimate crux of the biblical issue is that humans decided to choose their wisdom over and against God's wisdom, right? And so because of this, now, the entirety of the Bible isn't really set up in such a way as to give us stark commands for every single thing that we could ever possibly do, saying, do this, don't do this, make it really black and white. But the idea instead is to train up those who have what I will call the divine mind and what Paul will later call the mind of Christ. That is, those who actually are able to choose between biblical godly wisdom and human wisdom. In any given circumstance, after having meditated on the scriptures, one should theoretically be able to choose the best option based on godly wisdom. And that's really how the scriptures present themselves. They suggest that you should read and reread and contemplate on them. Don't just give it a cursory reading and be done with it. Read it and reread it. And that is really what the idea is. And that's why you get in Genesis chapter seven, the idea of, of clean animals, even though it hasn't been referenced until Exodus, you know that the original readers, and then you too, should have read this and then be rereading this for details such as this. Yeah, well, I think the idea of clean and unclean animals actually comes up in Leviticus, I'm pretty sure, just as a, a minor tweak of information. But yeah, exactly. We should be reading and rereading, and Moses is either expecting you to know this while reading, or he's expecting you to soon discover this when you get to Leviticus. And then when you read it again, you'd be like, oh, if I miss it the first time, I see where it first came up. Exactly. That's that's a great insight, something to keep in mind. So as the story continues from the clean and unclean animals, we have something within the structure of the flood narrative, um, something that's called a chiasm. Um, a chiasm is often found in Hebrew poetry. Um, but you can find this um, in other types of literature in the Bible itself. But with, within this flood narrative, we see a chiasm being formed with numbers. So now there's different types of chiasms, but a really common one, which is the one we're going to see here, is at the beginning and end, there will be a similar point. So, for example, here in the flood narrative, um, in chapter 7, verse 4, God says, to know for in seven days I will send rain on the earth. Right? So we have this idea of wait seven days and then the flood will come. Well, at the end of this narrative, um, in chapter 8, it's mentioned uh, verses 10 and 12, when Noah lets out the dove to go and see if it can land anywhere, the dove comes back and then they wait it seven days to send out the dove again. So at the beginning of the flood and at the end of the flood we have a waiting of seven days right so we can think of those as subset a now if we're going to move in in just a step subset b in chapter 7 verse 12 it says rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights and then the closing part of that is in chapter 8 verse 6 which at the end of 40 days Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And so subset B is there. And then there's usually a, a middle point, which we have in chapter 7, verse 24, which talks about the fact that the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Okay. And so we have this little sandwich. If you could imagine, we got, you know, bread on each side, the same thing. You go in just a step, you have, you know, turkey and turkey on each side. And then in the middle, you have a nice tomato. Um, so a lot of times in poetry, um, that middle point that sticks out on its own will be like the point of it all. So yeah, here, here's just a little chiasm. And it just points to not um, so important that it only lasted 150 days, but it points to structure. And so... Um, we're just going to point out little details like this in, in which the author chooses to structure 
um, their story, like their narrative, or structure their poetry and, and things of that nature, because um, we're going to see that the author has great uh, intention in each detail that they put. So we must be paying closer attention to these details and we can um, find good ways to, again, just see structure and see, um, hopefully with seeing structure, we'll see the author's intended meaning. Yeah, it's really important as well to note that structure is included by the author so as to convey a particular meaning. And so you cannot remove meaning from the structure, uh, meaning that when the author conveys his intention or his meaning through a particular literary means, so be it through narrative prose or through something like this chiasm or something like poetry, it's really tempting to take that and then, like we talked about last week, form maybe a proposition out of what we think this means. But instead of doing that, it is instead important to note that the author chose that particular literary vehicle to convey his meaning for a reason. He didn't offer it to us as a proposition. He offered it to us as, you know, in this case, the chiasm, or in the narrative prose case, narrative prose, or in poetry is poetry. There's a reason that it is conveyed in that medium. So we should never jump straight to the propositional element without first considering the structure that the author is using and how that actually impacts or affects the meaning that the author is trying to convey. Just a few things within the flood and the flood subsiding. We, we see so many mentions back to the very beginning. You know, he talks about all that was killed, you know, everything that had breath of life in it, going back to creation when God breathed life into his creation, into the living creatures at least. And at the beginning of chapter 8, when he makes the flood subside, he blows his wind over the earth. And that word for wind in Hebrew is ruach, which is the exact same thing for spirit. Remember, at the beginning of Genesis, God's spirit hovered over the face of the waters. So now God uses his ruach to blow the waters off. And we see down verses 11 through 13 just like in the creation narrative, God is separating the waters from the dry land. So when you get down to verse 13, you have dried land appearing again. So we had a deconstruction of earth, as Dylan said. Now we have kind of like a recreation type of deal. So there's lots of allusions back to the very beginning. We also have God saying for things to be fruitful and multiply on the earth, that same blessing that was used at the very beginning for creatures and for humans, especially. And so we'll go from there into where God makes a covenant with Noah. And that starts with a sacrifice being made. Uh, and that happens at the end of chapter 8 uh, Verses 20 through 22. And so something weird, you know, we have Noah building an altar. And he takes some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered a burnt offering on the altar. Now, again, we're, we're making direct allusions back to Exodus and Leviticus, where um, God talks about the altar needing to be built. And the first, I think, seven chapters of Leviticus is all about sacrifice and the types of acceptable sacrifice that you can make right and so we have the same kind of idea here where this is meditation literature where you're either going to figure it out once you read through leviticus or you're already going to know about sacrifices in the bible but anyways when you come back around to read but now we're getting very levitical in our types of uh, vocabulary here um, so very interesting to see. In addition, the author is actually drawing allusions, like Corey was saying, to two very different narratives. So you have, at, on the one hand, the Genesis narrative, like Corey was pointing out, this is actually a recreation of 
the world. So you're looking at Noah as, hey, is this the guy? Is this the promised seed that is going to come as a result of the promise in Genesis 3? And up until this point, you're very hopeful. You're going, wow, maybe this could be the dude. You have the idea of the deconstruction of creation, but God chooses to save one who walks with him. Remember, we talked about Enoch walking with God, and Noah walks with God. He's a righteous person because he walks with God, just as Adam and Eve walked in, with God in the garden. And God sees that Noah uh, is, so he makes the judgment call uh, that Noah is, is righteous. So you have that whole narrative being thrown in here. Then with the recreation idea, you're really led up onto cloud nine. You're really led to go, oh, maybe this is the dude. So that is the 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 side of Genesis, the side of the person reading this for the first time. Now, if you know the story, like we're going to go over in a little bit, you know that things don't necessarily go so well. And so from that perspective, then this is also pointing forward, like Corey was pointing out, to Exodus and Leviticus. So in chapter 8, at the very beginning, it has imagery, God remembers Noah, he sends his wind, his ruah, like Corey pointed out, to blow over the earth and the waters so that the waters will subside. Well, where else do we see that imagery? Well, we see that in the Exodus that we're going to come across. God remembers the Israelites who are actually in the uh, in Egypt, in exile, and so he uh, rescues them. And then when they come to the Red Sea, God sends his spirit to blow over the waters to separate the water so that they can cross over on dry land. So again, you're getting this imagery that's pointing forward to something that's going to come. And then finally, like Corey pointed out in this idea of sacrifice, you're pointing forward to Leviticus and the idea of covenant, you're pointing forward to Leviticus. So this is all going to be tied in to one narrative here, and it's drawing from both pools. And so when Noah comes before the Lord on a high place, so that ultimately the the ark, when the water subsides and it dries up, the ark comes to rest on Ararat mountain. It's a high place. We're going to come to find that high places, or mountains especially, are often places where human, humanity comes to worship God. And so that's going to be the case here. That's going to be the case that we're going to see in the Abraham narrative. It's obviously the case at Sinai when they come up the mountain. It's obviously the case with the temple at Zion. So that's going to be a continual theme that we're going to see. So once again, we get the idea that, okay, the waters have subsided. Noah is now on top of a mountain, building an altar, getting ready to create or cut a covenant with Yahweh and is offering burnt offerings just as Leviticus is going to prescribe in order to cut this covenant. So we're really left on this point of, of asking, is this the guy? This is this is perhaps the covenant that we're waiting for, the covenant of renewal of the earth, where maybe this guy actually is the promised seed. Maybe he's going to bring us the promised rest that we're expecting. Man, the Bible is so cool in that way. I, I forgot about that reference to passing through the Red Sea. I was, I was talking about this idea last night with a group of high schoolers, and I was comparing it to, you know, movies. When you come to the end and there's a huge twist, like, you know, classic M. Night Shyamalan movies. And if you guys have seen The Sixth Sense, if you ever want to see it, maybe just, like, skip ahead 30 seconds right quick. Um, but at the end of the movie, you find out that um, the main character, Bruce Willis, has been dead the whole time. Like, wait, what? You spoiler. go back. Yeah, spoiler alert. I told you, skip it. If you're still listening, don't be mad at me. I warned you. Um, and so you go back and rewatch the movie. All of a sudden, there's little clues. I'd be like, oh, that makes sense now. I see how this is foreshadowing that spoiler. And so God is the overarching author of scripture. is just so cool, so much better than M. Night Shyamalan. And God has never had any busts like some of Shyamalan's movies. No. No, hey, I love the, you know, the sixth sense, but sorry. God's better. Take away the story. God is the best author, um, best director. And so we come away with, besides just an immense rever uh, reverence for scripture and God as author, we come away thinking Noah 
this guy could be the guy, just as Dylan said. And so we then have a new blessing at chapter 9, verse 1. Um, and so we have the same blessing that was given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply. Um, but instead of the, the same verbiage being used after that of have dominion over all things, God says that all creatures will be in fear of you. They're going to fear you because I'm now giving them to you as food. Um, so we see that things aren't quite the same. There's not quite the same peace anymore. Uh, just as when we started out the chapter, there was such violence. And now we're going to have, oh, things are better, I guess. But now animals are food. It's just not quite the same Edenic temple type of peace. So we're still kind of moving further away from God, which is a clue um, to, I think, how the story is going to go as far as if Noah is the guy or not. And so... He says to take it seriously, though, because, you know, within these creatures, you shall not eat the blood or drink the blood that is in it, because within the blood is its life. So we see that God gives this pretty heavy heartedly. He cares for all of his life. And he says, I'm going to require a great price for anyone who just goes around killing animals for any reason, or especially if anyone kills another human, which is something that we saw with God's promise to protect Cain back in chapter four. Um, and so now we have the big moment after that blessing, which is a take on the blessing of creation to Adam and Eve, we have the covenant being established. Um, and so we had the, the covenant being promised and now it's established. So God says kind of interestingly that he's going to establish the covenant with Noah. And then he says, in verse 12, that I'm establishing this covenant with every living creature. And then he says in verse 13 that um, the rainbow is a sign of the covenant, which is a covenant between me and the earth. So it's not just for Noah, but it's given to Noah, but it's showing God's covenant with all of creation, which is pretty cool. We, we'll see the idea of, of covenant being very much linked to heaven and earth um, in the future. But we have Noah being the first recipient of a covenant promise with God. And so after this um, big covenant that God makes with Noah and all the creatures of the earth, we go down into um, a section of blessing and curses. Um, and we have a, a brief story in between about Noah and his three sons. Um, so once we get off of the ark, once this covenant happens, the very next thing after the covenant is that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Reading into verse 21 now, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And then Ham, he sees his father's nakedness and then goes and tells his brothers. And then we see his brothers take a garment and walk backwards towards their father and cover their father. Uh, which is a pretty weird story, but it seems to have big implications. And uh, give us some insight, Dylan. <laughs> this is weird. The story that happens immediately after the covenant that God cuts with Noah, it really serves as a transition between the flood narrative and then the narrative that we're going to see immediately follow. So this really serves to connect the two narratives and to bring light on a key issue, namely, is this the guy? Up until this point, you are expecting and thinking Maybe this could be the guy. It, it it really sounds like the guy. He's going to bring peace. God's creating a covenant with this man. And moreover, God is actually going through this action of recreation. He destroyed what was wicked. And then maybe he's going to raise up this new humanity. Oh, oh, wait. It, like Corey said, wasn't the exact image of the Edenic temple state. The ideal state is what I'll refer to that as. Instead... There's something that seems a little off. Oh, and and here it is. So continuing in the, the idea of recreation, then you have God create or recreate 
he removes the earth from the floodwaters, and then he creates a covenant between himself and Noah. There's an implied covenant there in Genesis. And then Noah plants a garden and eats of its fruit. But this garden isn't a garden that God plants. It's a garden that Noah plants on his own accord with his own power, eats of its fruit. So that being an allusion to the idea that humans are going to be working the ground, bringing forth their own food from the ground. And then as soon as he he eats or, or drinks of the fruit, he lies naked. So remember what we said when we were talking in Genesis about the idea of nakedness. So in Genesis 2, you have the idea that they're naked and not ashamed. But as soon as they eat of the tree of knowing good and bad, all of a sudden they're naked and they know it. They're ashamed. It's what we called a nakedness of judgment. And so because of this, then nakedness takes on this characteristic as you read through the Old Testament, that oftentimes it refers to a shameful thing to be naked. It, it's shameful. There's a nakedness of, of judgment there. And that's really the case here. So then when Ham, the father of Canaan, which we'll come back to, goes and sees his father naked, instead of covering that shame, instead of covering the, the nakedness of judgment, he, in a sense, relishes and goes and tells his brothers, hey, you know, my dad's naked. Our dad's naked. Which is a weird thing to hear from your brother. I, I hope I never hear that from my brother. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of disturbing. <laughs> but when Shem and Japheth then go in, instead of looking at, on their father's shame, their father's nakedness of judgment, they turn their backs and then cover his nakedness of judgment. And as we already t- touched on, the idea of covering the nakedness is going to be a theme that's going to be consistent in the Bible. So even back in Genesis, God covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. We see later on in Torah that the high priest wears garments that cover their nakedness. And finally, like we touched on earlier, the idea of nakedness being covered culminates in Jesus Christ, who clothes us in his righteousness. So our nakedness or shame is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the idea that I mean, the idea that Noah got drunk and and passed out naked, that's probably bad in its own right. But the deeper meaning to that is that this is showcasing the fact that this dude, he's not the guy. He's laying here naked in his own shame under the same nakedness of judgment that Adam and Eve were under. We're still looking for the dude. So Ham is going to be, as we're going to see, pretty big trouble for this. Japheth and Shem, on the other hand, did what was right in covering their father's nakedness and not gazing upon it. So we're going to get into the curses that Noah delves out now as a result of this encounter. In verse 24, we see when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he goes and he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. So he doesn't curse Ham directly. Instead, The narrative specifically points out that Ham is the father of Canaan. And then when Noah awakes, realizes what Ham has done, he goes and curses Canaan for what they, through Ham, have done. And we're going to see the Canaanites come up as a major player coming up later on in the Torah. And oftentimes they're portrayed as people who revel in their own shame or their own rebellion, their own wisdom that is over and against God's wisdom, which is exactly the picture we get when they're first introduced here. And then he goes on and says, blessed be the Lord or Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. All that to say that Noah's not the guy. Also, Ham's not the guy, nor is Canaan the guy. So we're still looking for this promised seed. We're looking for the promised line. So with that, we are then going to be put then on a trajectory looking through the descendants of Noah for that promised line. Yeah. And, and with that too, um, we've, we've so far had God blessing and cursing everyone. So now we have um, Noah being the first human to pass on a blessing and a curse. So Noah curses Canaan and blesses Shem. So Shem we see is, okay, this is the guy to follow. And Japheth, although he 
didn't do anything wrong. He's not cursed. He's still beneath Shem. It's like, yeah, Japheth is fine. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan can be their slave. Right? So we have this idea that we should follow Shem as the line to follow. And then we have Genesis chapter 10, which is often called the table of nations. So th this is going into the descendants of Noah's three sons. And to start off, we have that distinguishing sentence where it says, these are the generations of. So these are the generations of Noah and his sons and those who are born to Noah's sons after the flood. And so as we look through these different people and nations that come out of Noah's sons, you know, a fun exercise, you can just go and look through and who are the names that you know, right? Because this passage does a good job of introducing the characters to come in the future that is like major nations. You know, for example, we already heard that Ham, his son is Canaan, the one that gets cursed. Like, oh yeah, we hear about Canaan a lot. Uh, we also hear about Cush a lot and Egypt. We know Egypt is really bad by the story, we should also get the idea he's bad because oh yeah, he comes from Ham. But even in the name, you could do little name studies and find out that Egypt means oppressor, which is exactly what the nation of Egypt comes to be. You know, you keep looking down and you find Assyria, a nation that's built, not a person. So Assyria and Nineveh is built in the midst of it. And so you know, already Babylon and Nineveh, those are like the two main enemies to come. And then as you go down from there, verses 15 through 18, that's like all of the major uh, nations that end up despising the Israelites. Okay, and so we have we have other children of Shem and, and so on and so forth. But we get an idea of um, what these guys are going to be like based on their fathers. And we see that we have a bunch of introductions of many characters who are about to come. Um, one other thing to notice in this section, it says that after it introduces one group of people, so whether it be like Japheth or Ham or Shem, at the end it says these are you know, their sons by their clans and their languages and their lands and their nations, which is kind of interesting because once you get to chapter 11, verse 1, it starts out with, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. You know, again, we see the author of Genesis foreshadowing things. So he says, these guys are going to go off and make their own nations and have their own languages. But before that happens, everyone's still together. They come together and they're all unified. And so as they are unified, the same language, same words, and they're on a plane in the land of Shinar, they all settle there. And so verse three, we have this new narrative start with now like the, the new people that first come out of the boat, right? Besides just Noah and his sons, this is the first actions we see. So like, okay, how did the whole renewing of creation go? And so the people say to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and bitumen and mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so you think, oh, that's, you know, pretty cool. They're making a big tower. But then we see the Lord come down. He sees the tower that they built. And he says, behold, they're one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. So come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So we see God come down and disperse this building plan. But the thing is, what what is so wrong with this plans of building? What What are the clues given by the people's plan that should give us a way that God is displeased? One of the big clues here is the fact that it says that the people say, come, let us build ourselves a city and have its tower go up to the heavens. 
and let us make a name for ourselves. So one of the big themes that is going to be consistent throughout the text is going to be the idea of making a name. So whose name are the biblical characters seeking to build? Are they seeking to build up the name of Yahweh? Or alternatively, are they seeking to build up their own or excuse me, their own name? And this idea is connected closely with the judgment that they constantly make in their own eyes or in Yahweh's eyes. So if someone acts and does something good in, in Yahweh's eyes, generally speaking, they're seeking to build up the name of the Lord. But alternatively, if they are seeking to build their own name, they are seeking what is right in their own eyes. The ideas are fairly connected. Uh, moreover, you once again, like we talked about briefly, see the idea of east. So they migrated east. And remember, east is going to consistently come up as a negative direction. Anything going east, you should stop, question, oh my goodness, is something about, about to happen that's bad. And then also the idea that they're trying to go up so like we talked about briefly, the humans often meet with God on a mountain or a high place, and it is it becomes representative of the place that humans are able to meet with God. And so they're trying to make a high place that's so high that it actually is the heavens that they are reaching. And so they are creating, in essence, a high place that they don't need any sort of mediation between them and God. They're going to make a name for themselves because they're basically making themselves to be God. They have a tower that is the heavens. Why would you go to God's heavens when you have your own heavens? Yeah, that, that's so cool. That's the idea of that when in knowing that the tower is trying to get up to the highest heaven, right? And so it, this is, you know, the the big divisive point in all of scripture where are people going to come to God by his terms or are they going to come to God by their terms so people are trying to make a name for themselves trying to get their own glory instead of giving glory to the one who actually deserves it right and so God's like this this isn't good for them and so just as God put a sword and a cherubim blocking the now fallen humans from getting back to the tree of life he says I'm going to disperse you guys because this actually isn't good for you to try and attain this type of glory for yourselves because that's just not where it belongs. You were made to glorify God, right? And so God then called this place Babylon, right? So in verse 9, it was called Babel, which is literally how it's spelled. But everywhere else in Scripture, it's named Babylon, only in um, chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis does it get Babel. And they called it Babel because it sounds like the word for confused when you confuse their language, which is Balal. And so we see Babylon start here, th this pride of Babylon where people try to attain to the highest heaven on their own terms. And then uh, we're going to finish with this next section of, now these are the generations of Shem. That's uh, chapter 11, verse 10. And so we see Shem's line go down to Terah, and Terah fathered Abram, which we should know that name. If not, read on. He's the next important key in this story that um, these stories are being linked to in this genealogy. And so now once uh, we get to Terah, at the very end of chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, we have a little story about Terah. In verse 30, we hear about Sarai was barren. She couldn't have children. Okay, so that's going to follow over into the next story. Verse 31 says, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, and they went forth together from Ur, of the Chaldeans, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Right, so this journey that Terah set out for with his family is going to be something that directly links into God's call of Abram, um, which is you know the famous like, get up from your father's people and go to the land that I will show you, which just so ends up being the land of Canaan. And so these are the important characters, Abram, Sarai, and Lot, that will take us into 
our next door. And if the genealogy is linking us in this way from the blessed line that fell from Noah, we should be thinking, oh, is Abram going to be the guy who blesses all nations and all of the earth now? Um, so we're going to keep that in mind going into chapter 12, focusing on Abram. Awesome. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up there. We wanted to thank you guys for tuning into the show today. Again, if you guys have any thoughts, any questions, we would love to hear from you guys. You can always email us scripturechronicles at gmail.com. That's scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Also, you can check us out online, www.thebibleisastory.com is the website, or on Facebook, the handle is at Scripture Chronicles. Remember that we are going through the Bible as a unified narrative. We're trying to showcase to you the narrative elements or the narrative themes that really get carried through the entirety of Scripture and show how the Bible is one single unified story and unified narrative and give you the tools so that you guys can go and actually study the Bible in this way for yourselves. So we're going through the scripture in kind of a commentary fashion where we're going to be pulling out key themes and key ideas and then giving you our impressions and commentary on them. But that being said, don't just take our word for it. Instead, we really encourage you to search the scriptures for yourselves. Really utilize the tools that we are helping to build here and actually go through the text. See how it builds on itself and creates that unified narrative for yourself. Pick out what you believe to be key themes. Try to figure out how does this key theme relate to the overall text? How does it relate to the story that's being presented? What is the authorial intent, etc.? Ultimately, delve into the text for yourself. Don't just take our word for it and, and say that you're happy to now know the text because Dylan and Corey said so. With that, we hope that you guys have a great rest of your day and adios. adios. <laughs> Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Beat you to it. Beat you to it.